but my family believed that I had lost my mind. And so there was, I, I never knew, I didn't know he did this. He did this when I was at work. I had, that was the lowest point, like this dark place where I had no one, literally no one to talk to. Welcome to This Seriously Sucks, the right podcast when life goes seriously wrong. In these interview episodes, people who've been through major traumas and events that derailed their lives talk about times when they didn't want to go on and share how they did. All our guests are at least 10 years past their big this. They keep it real, pull no punches, and share what they wish they had known when they were in the middle of their this. Now, here is your host, the author of This Is Not The End, who knows what it feels like to want it to be the end. Nina Sossaman Pogue. Yes, this is the right podcast when life goes seriously wrong. I am so glad you found us. Thank you for sharing some time here. On this podcast, we talk about the lowest moments of highly successful people, the major events that rocked their world and how they got through them. We can all learn from their stories of resilience. Today's guest is Heather Kent. She is a registered psychotherapist. So usually it's not professionals, but just people who've gone through trauma. So we're kind of mixing it up a little bit today. She has a training background in trauma assessment and treatment. So she will be quite the wealth of knowledge to share her insights with us. She's joining us from Canada. She has also been a teacher both in schools and for the government. She is the number one Amazon bestseller, uh, bestselling author of the books, Heal from Your Narcissistic Ex, and I Left My Toxic Relationship, Now What? So much of her professional practice is focused on helping clients through the process of recovering from their trauma or PTSD or of abusive relationships, having survived her own. And that is what we are going to talk about today. So Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so glad you are. And I like to begin with the success part of our resumes to set the stage for talking about how we got through the darkest part of our resumes. And you have survived your own experience in an abusive relationship. So at one point in your life, I'm guessing like many of us, many of our listeners, you couldn't see a bright future and you just weren't seeing a way to get out. Let's start with that and share a little bit of your story on the toughest part of your journey. Absolutely. Um, so I was in an abusive relationship with a narcissist, so someone who has a personality disorder. That part is interesting too, because of course I didn't know what narcissism was. I didn't know what NPD looked like. I didn't know anything about that because I was, you know, 18. <laughs> um, I entered into this relationship when I was in my first year of university of my undergrad. And actually, this person was someone that I had gone to high school with. This is someone that I actually actually knew him since I was in grade seven, which is so wow. crazy. I know. Um, so we were in the same programs, but we never really spent time together. He had a reputation of being kind of uh, a jerk in high school. Like, and he really had a reputation for not being nice to girls. In the end, we ended up in the same town, the university town like 2000 kilometers away from where we went to high school. So it just, it was so random that we ended up in the same place. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up spending time together because a few other people from our high school were also in that same town going to school. So we would get together. And so I got to see this other side of him and he was wonderful and he was lovely and he was super interested and spending lots of time with me and he pursued me for a while and I kept saying no 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 I'm not interested because I knew how he was but he wore me down eventually and I saw this sweet wonderful side to him and so I thought well you know what everybody can change people change over time high school was different you know mm -hmm. and so I thought that everything was great and it was really great for like a month and then these sort of warning signs started to pop up but I totally ignored them. Again, you know, I'm 19, I'm naive. I don't really know what I'm doing. But, and I was really committed to him at that point because this is kind of what happens. When, when you meet someone who is so charismatic, so over the top attentive, so intense and just wanting to get to know you and spend time with you and, and 
tell you all these wonderful things and how much they adore you and how you know, they're going to, they're making plans of a future with you. These are all great things you want to hear when you're 19. Right. And so I absolutely became swept up in, in it, in all of that with him. And so when those warning signs started to pop up, I was very easily able to kind of dismiss them or like come up with reasons why that might've happened or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so it didn't seem like a big deal until it was a big deal. What I didn't know at the time is that this is kind of how abusive relationships go, is that everything seems great at the beginning. And then they slowly, but very steadily start to be able to take their mask off is kind of what I like to call it. And, and their true selves become revealed over time. And they start to degrade you, manipulate you, keep you hanging. I remember and this is back before the time of cell phones. So right. I'm dating myself a bit here. That's um, okay. I'm with you. <laughs> I remember like he, he was in the military initially and uh, he would be gone for like training courses and things over the summer. And he would say, okay, well, I'm going to be getting home. Um, and I'm going to call you on this day at this time. I was like, okay. And this was the week of my sister's wedding. And so um, he was supposed to accompany me for the rehearsal dinner, you know, and be part of the wedding kind of festivities. And I remember sitting at home, my parents' house, for hours waiting for the phone to ring. And my parents were like, what are you doing? This is never something we have ever seen you do before. Why are you sitting around? It's a beautiful day. Like, go outside, go swimming. You know, we had a pool in the backyard. And I was like, nope, I can't. I have to wait. He said he was going to call. And I waited for like six hours. Wow. And he finally called. So I was thinking, oh my gosh, like something must have happened. There was an accident when they were driving back from wherever he was, you know, doing the exercises. Like, is he okay? Is he okay? Our heads go to the worst place. So he calls and he's like, hey, how's it going? Like totally nonchalant. And I was like, what do you mean? How's it going? I've been sitting here like waiting for you to call. I've been so worried. Like, are you okay? Is everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. I'm like, well, where have you been? Like, did, did you just get home? Just feeling bored. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So this was kind of an early kind of indicator, right? So mm-hmm. it didn't matter to him that I, he had said that he was going to call at a certain time. It didn't matter to him that I was sitting around waiting. It didn't matter to him that I might've been worried. Nothing mattered to him, right? Everything was about him and his schedule and what he wanted. But again, you know, I let it go. I was upset about it, but I let it go. Right. And, uh, you know, these things kind of progressed over time. And it was so hard to be able to see clearly when you're in it too, because you keep hanging on to that beginning part when everything was wonderful and you keep trying to do whatever you can to kind of get back there because that's the part that you think is real. And so later things progressed very quickly into, you know, him cheating on me. And and I watched him cheat on me in front of me. And when I confronted him about it, he denied it, vehemently denied it. I didn't see things properly. I'm imagining things. I'm overreacting. You're drinking too much. Like all of these things that he, and I'm like, no, but the, you, you start to really question, did I imagine it? Am I crazy? Am I making this up? Like, I'm fairly sure I saw you making out with her. Like, in <laughs> yeah, front I would of me see that when we were out with our friends. And so I was very upset. I'm like, how could you do this to me? Like, you're living in the same house as me now. Like, I, I advocated for you to come stay with my housemates and I because you had nowhere to live. And, you know, I'm trying really hard to make everything great for you and obviously I cared about him and I was like how could you do that oh that never happened you're overreacting it's not a big deal you're making this up you miss you didn't see what you thought you saw whatever and so he would also have online conversations he would have online conversations with his old girlfriends other girls that he had you know broken their hearts and cheated on them with other people but he kept them on on the back burner all the time while we were living together while we were together and he would long conversations with them 
left the computer up so that I would see these things. And then it came to the point where he was actually planning to like, go home with someone else while I was at work one day. And uh, I found that because he left it open for me to see. And so I did something really scary. And I went and I met her at the meeting place where he was supposed to go. Oh, wow. That's really ballsy. <laughs> really terrifying. Like I can almost throw up in my mouth a little bit when I think about it. Oh, so bad. And I could pick her out. I didn't know what she looked like, but I could pick her out right away. And unfortunately, it was a little bit stereotypical. I'm like, she kind of looks a bit trashy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, but he never, ever showed up. So I just made out like, oh, I heard you guys were meeting up. I thought I would join you. Like, it's so nice to meet you. I heard you're an old friend. Right. And then he, I guess, came to the door and saw that I was talking to her and he never came in. Oh, wow. And I got scathing messages from him. And he used to compare me to her and the other woman who he was, who I watched him cheat on me with, um, about, you know, how they were more experienced sexually than I was. And I would always feel like I wasn't good enough in that realm. And so I ended up driving her home when he never showed up. I talked to her for like an hour. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. And I was super nice, sweet as pie. And I drove her home. But then I got punished when I got back. This was my fault. I was blamed. How dare you? How dare you, you know, go through my conversations that, you know, I left open for you to find. How dare you show up? How dare you? Really? How dare I? How dare I when you're the one that's planning to go meet with this person? How dare I? But I felt so guilty. I ended up apologizing to him. And this would happen constantly. This type of stuff happened all the time. Whenever I tried to call him on something that wasn't okay, he would freak out and have this rage explosion and he would threaten to leave. He would start packing up his stuff. Every time that I tried to have a conversation about what you did made me feel this way, this wasn't acceptable, this behavior, like I can't do that. Like this isn't okay. I can't be with you when you're going to do these things. And then he would, you know, blame me for being oversensitive, for being overreacting, for putting all of these things together and creating a wild story, for invading his privacy, for all of these things. Meanwhile, he's off doing all the things that he knows that are not okay. So over time, I became a person that I didn't recognize. I was suspicious. I was anxious. Like I would wake up with this horrible pit in my stomach to the point where I felt like I was going to be sick every single day because I never knew where he was going to be, who he was going to be with, what he was going to be doing. And he had breadcrumbed enough of the good stuff, just enough for me to kind of stay hooked and to stay in so I have to interject there because I think some people listening might say, well, why didn't you just leave? It's an excellent question. And it actually, eventually I did leave it, but it took me almost four years because then he, it also turned into like a, a, he, a pornography addiction problem too. So not only was he talking to these other women and sending them flowers and just like having these full on relationships with them online, you know, until two in the morning while I was asleep in the next room he was also totally addicted to porn. And so there was one day he never came home one night and I pulled up the history on the computer and it was just all complete, like all porn sites. And I was like, so either you were by yourself in the engineering office, giving yourself a treat for the last eight hours or you were with someone else. So when that happened, I, we were engaged at that point. He had asked me to marry him. Oh, I wow. had yes. And uh, I gave the ring back and I said, no, I absolutely cannot marry you. I think you have a serious problem and I can't do this. And I got in my car and I drove away and I called my parents. And this was so incredibly difficult and very embarrassing for me. And I told them what had been happening because they didn't know any of this, of course, right? Because you were covering for him and apologizing for him because that's what people do. Always. And of course I lived, we lived 2000 kilometers away. So they couldn't see, they didn't see us all the time. They didn't see the day-to-day stuff. And so I told them, of course they were shocked, but when I told them, you know, why they were very supportive, but he was panicking, panicking. So he he started 
calling my sister and he was like, we have a big problem here. You know, Heather's making irrational decisions and, you know, I need your help and trying to get my family to, you know, back him up kind of thing. Cause then he didn't know what to do. Cause he, he didn't ever think that I would have strength to finally decide to leave him. Right. And because he kept telling me this whole time, I'm never going to do any better than him. No one's going to love me, you know, the way that he does. And that he's, I'm lucky to have him. And he was the first person that I had been with sort of in an intimate fashion. And so, you know, he had been with many other people before me. And so I also felt really self-conscious about that and being, being with someone else in that way, because of course he degraded me in that regard too. And so I always felt like I wasn't good enough or anything enough. And so over time, I, that, that showed up in my physical appearance because I just didn't treat myself very well. So I wasn't eating well. Um, I had gained some weight and I didn't feel attractive. He made fun of me for that. I just had no self-worth. And so it didn't make sense to me that I could possibly leave because who would ever want to be with me? Goodness. How many years were you with him? In the total eight years. Wow. So when I broke up with him and gave the ring back, you know, that, that should be the end of the story, right? Oh, but it's not. <laughs> not the end. And the plot gets thicker. Exactly. So what happened? I had six months where every week we were still living in the same house, like with other people. Oh no. It was awful. So I just decided that every weekend I would pack up my car and I would go somewhere else. So I would go down and visit friends in other cities and it ended up being really good for me. Um, I spent time with friends, which I hadn't done because they isolate you too. That's the other thing that happened. And for six months, we were not together, but at Christmas time, he showed up to my parents' house with this beautiful homemade gift that he had made for me and put on this amazing performance in front of my entire family about how much he missed me about how many times he had screwed up how he had gone to therapy and things are different now and he's a different person and he sees all the error of his ways and he can't imagine a life without me and he you know really wants to work it out right and this performance was not only for me it was absolutely meant for my family as well because mm-hmm. then you yeah. become the bad guy again. Right. That he had to win everybody over. So we all got sucked back in. Um, and then what happened was within two months, his mom suddenly died of a brain aneurysm. And he had proposed to me again the night before that happened. And then his mom died. And then I felt, okay, there's no way I could ever leave him now. Yeah. You're in. Yeah. And so we got married. Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I can laugh Um, now. It's not funny, but I I, just knowing you like, uh, yeah, we got married and, uh, the wedding was all about what he wanted. It wasn't what I wanted. The house that we bought was the house that he decided we could buy. Mind you, I had the money for the down payment. He didn't, he was still a student. Mm -hmm. I had the car. I had the full-time job as a teacher. I had the down payment for our house and, uh, you know, in like the next kind of three and a half years, but he continued to be emotionally degrading. He was dismissive. He was abusive. Um, I was always terrified of what was going to set him off. I felt like I was walking on eggshells all the time. I remember I would come home from work and I would park in the driveway and I would just have to sit in, in the driveway for a minute and just kind of like steal myself, prepare myself before I went in the house because I didn't know what I was going to walk into. Which version of him am I going to be experiencing him, experiencing when I walk through that door? Is he going to be happy and, and kind and sweet? Or is he going to be, you know, difficult and argumentative and, you know, chastising? And so I learned Well, first of all, he was very smart to read me because he knew that I, um, you know, love people and I'm a people pleaser. So he used that to his advantage. Mm -hmm. And so um, he was very quick to be able to manipulate and, you know, make me, you know, work on play on my guilt that I already had. And so I felt guilty for literally everything. His moods were my fault. And he made that clear 
And I began, I learned to believe that and I really internalized that. And so I believed that everything that was wrong with his day was somehow my fault. And so that I had to atone for that. I had to constantly apologize. I had to do things to make up for it. I, I remember one day asking him, what would you like for supper? It was an explosion of a response. How dare I ask that? I should just know what he wants. And he is tired of me asking him the same questions over and over again. Um, and I just remember feeling like I would stay at work sometimes like school would end at like three o'clock. I would stay there till eight o'clock because I dreaded going home. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like if I could just crawl under my desk and just dig myself a hole and just, you know, drag a gigantic rock over the hole and stay there, no one would ever find me and I wouldn't have to go back home and deal with this anymore. Like I was just by the end of it, I was so worn out and I was so just this empty hollow shell and I felt like I had nothing left. And it wasn't until actually some friends who started to witness his behavior pointed out to me that this was not okay. But even at the beginning, when they started pointing that stuff out, I was like, no, like, that's not a big deal. Like, don't worry about it. I, I brought, I had brought home a gift for him. I had picked up like, you know, his favorite baked goods and a little gift when I was out and about. Right. My friend and I had come home together and he wasn't home yet. So when he got back from wherever he was, I was like, oh, I got you these cookies and I brought you this little thing. Yeah. And he, so I gave them to him. And rather than say, oh my gosh, like, thank you so much. That's so nice. Like, I'm super excited. I can't wait to have one. Let's have some right now. He asked them on the counter and he was like, oh yeah, cool. And he left, like, and he kept walked down the stairs. And my friend, oh yeah, my friend was appalled. Like the look on her face, like her jaw dropped and her eyes were bulging out of her head. And she was like, what is wrong with him? And I was like, okay. I didn't think that there was a problem at all. I was like, what are you talking about? so incredibly rude and mean. I can't believe he did that. You're, you let him do that to you? And I was like, I don't understand why you're so upset. This is completely inappropriate. I would like, I would freak out if my husband did that to me. Like if I did something nice for him and this is how he reacted, like that is not okay. And I thought that she was crazy. I was like, you are like overreacting. This is not a big deal. Like, like there's not even an issue here. This is how brainwashed I had become, right? And, and the cycle of abuse that you get sucked into, you ask me, you know, why didn't I leave? And that's a complex answer because, again, what you don't know when you're in it, because you're just in survival mode. You're just, right. and remember, my family had been, you know, had forgiven him. And I couldn't deal with the stress of them hating him again, and me in the relation, like, so I never told them all the things that were going on because I just, I couldn't, I had no capacity for that compartmentalizing. It's too right? much. It's, it's too much. much. And so I just kept on keeping on, you know, and, and, but you're in this cycle of abuse and it's very specific. The narcissistic cycle of abuse is very specific. Take us through it. it. So the first, the first and most important is the idealization or the love bombing phase. And that's the part that happens at the very, very beginning of the relationship. And you come back to it every so often because they have to keep you hooked, right? And so the love bombing phase is the, everything is wonderful. They're super attentive. They're loving on you. They're over the top. They're bringing you presents. They're taking you out to fancy dinner. They're telling you how wonderful you are, how they couldn't live without you. They don't know what they did to deserve you. We can't, I can't wait to do this, that, and the other future faking, dreaming with you, all of these things. And so when that happens, you're, you feel, oh, why we're together. This is why I married you this, this, when it was good, it was so amazing. So wonderful. And so you cling on to those memories and those times for dear life. And when everything goes bad, you're just desperately trying to get back to the good place. But that very quickly fades and then they go into what's called the devaluation phase. And so the devaluation is where they start 
making fun of you. They'll start picking on you, or they may offer helpful suggestions under the guise of, you know, caring for you and wanting what's best for you. Really, they're criticizing you. They're telling you what to do better, what to do differently, things they don't like about you. Very using sarcastic comments as a way to like degrade you, mm-hmm. um, full on gaslighting you. So again, when you try to call him on his behavior, he could never say, yeah, what I did was wrong ever. Wow. It was always somehow my fault, my misunderstanding, my overreaction, my being too sensitive, or that never happened at all. I never said that. You're making that up. You're crazy. You really start to question your reality and you start to question your sanity and you start to think that maybe there is something wrong with you. Maybe you do have a memory problem because you get told this so often over and over and over again, you start to believe it. And so the other thing that's really complicated is that I also felt like if I started to tell anybody about this, nobody would believe me because outwardly, he's Mr. Congeniality. Charming. Everybody loves him. Life of the party. Absolutely. You're, he's such a great guy, Heather. You're so lucky. I can't believe you got so lucky to, you know, have such a wonderful, amazing, fantastic husband, Ugh. you know? And, and he was, to other people, a great guy. He's a great friend. He's super helpful. He's reliable. He'd come help you out with fixing stuff, coaching the hockey team, whatever. He would never let anybody else down. But he had no problem letting me down mm-hmm. on a regular basis. In, in all things, he was never wrong. And so, and I consistently was. And so I was the problem. And then it came to the point where he wanted to have kids and he was like, okay, we need to start having kids. And I was like, well, that seems like a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that we can laugh about because yes, that seems like a bad idea. And I didn't say that to him, but this right. is how there was something very deep, like viscerally in my gut that was like rejecting this idea, like that I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I didn't know why I didn't understand. Um, But I said, you know, I'm not ready for that. I don't, I can't do this right now. And then he began to threaten me, of course, if you don't have kids with me, I'm going to leave. And so I know I'm no, I'm no expert on parenting at this point, you know, but I was pretty sure that having a kid because you're being threatened probably isn't a great plan. Probably not the best. You're right. So I was like, uh, I don't think I can. So what he did is he called my parents and he called my sister and he told them that I was being, you know, difficult and that he really wanted to have kids and he didn't understand why I wouldn't get on board and like, what's wrong with me. And, you know, could they help him to like talk to me and convince me that this is like what I need to be doing. So my family started putting on the pressure, telling me that I, you know, needed to kind of get on board and that this is like, having having kids and being a mom is like the best thing ever and like you don't want to miss out on that blah 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 what are you waiting for and so I had no support at all and of course I was alone and isolated and no my friends didn't know what was happening except for you know a couple of things right I kind of stuck to my guns he was really unhappy and I was you know punished on a regular basis He never became physically violent, but he was violent around me. He would be Mm -hmm. physically threatening. He would scream at me. He would get up in my face. He would get really close to me. He would like kind of back me into a wall. He ripped his clothes in front of me, threw hockey sticks down the wall, down the hallway. Banged on things, slammed cabinets, all the stuff that makes you cringe, makes you uncomfortable. Broke things of mine that had sentimental value that he knew meant a lot to me. He would break them on purpose. And so it wasn't until one day we were out uh, at a staff party for my staff and it was in the winter and we were out um, for dinner and like drinks and we went dancing and uh, the people at the coat check had lost my coat and it was a snowstorm outside. And so I, you know, I was just, you know, tired and I had a few drinks. I burst into tears. I was like, oh my gosh, they lost my coat. What am I going to do? Like, this is awful. And he got so angry that I was crying because my coat was lost. He left the the establishment and he ran down the street in the snowstorm, got in a taxi and left. 
Wow. And left me downtown alone with no money and no coat and no way to get home. And then other people finally had a chance to see what your reality was. Yeah. And what that happened was, from there? It was a hot topic of gossip at work the next Monday. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. So I found, I managed to, you know, my friends lent me money so that I could take a taxi to go home. But when I got home, he started chastising me about my behavior, about I had how I had embarrassed him, you know, by causing a scene when the coat was lost. And, you know, how, how could I have, you know, behaved so poorly and how could I have embarrassed him in such a way? And what is wrong with me? Mm -hmm. So I apologized to him. Oh my goodness. That's always. how it always seems to flip back around. It always becomes always. your fault somehow. Yeah. So there was one low point a few weeks later where I was with a friend and I was confiding in what was happening finally. Cause you know, they had kind of seen, I went into the kitchen and, uh, something piece of food or whatever and they came in and they said oh, you know I'm so sorry that you're dealing with this like he sounds like a real asshole I'm sorry I don't know if we're allowed to swear on the show but like you can say whatever you want asshole's fine we yeah. say much worse Perfect. um you know I'm so sorry that happened to you and I'm like yeah thanks and then um, he kissed me and I was so not expecting it and and so in the moment of course I was kind of like whoa and I mm -hmm. it was in the kiss but then I was like oh gosh I can't do this this is awful right and I was so terrified that he was going to find out. Terrified. Yeah. So I told him because I was like, if he finds out a different way, it's going to be awful. Like so you told your husband. Yeah. How did that go and over? Oh, I was a lying, cheating whore. I was, you know, the worst person on the planet. And then he was like desperate to like start like breaking into my computer and breaking into my email because he was convinced that there was something else more going on. But then one day he called my family when I was at work and told them that I had lost my mind, that I had had a, like a psychiatric break, that I had been sleeping with a bunch of other men and that he had proof and that I need psychiatric help and I need to be hospitalized. Wow, this story just keeps going down a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And so you want to know where my darkest moment was, was when, when my family was all in, in uh, Southern United States at that time, um, visiting my sister who lived there. And, and you, uh, were in, you were in Canada. I was in Canada. So when they heard this news, you know, and again, they had no reason not to believe him because, you know, they were on his side around the kids thing. They felt bad for him. I was being difficult and whatever. And then all of a sudden he calls saying that I had lost my mind and like started becoming this like random nymphomaniac, having a bunch of sex with, with men and that, he, and you know, he could prove it, you know, of course the proof never manifested because there isn't any. And so, but my family believed that I had lost my mind. I never knew. I didn't know he did this. He did this when I was at work. So I came home that day. He was, you know, acting normal. I called my family to say, hello. My mom wouldn't get on the phone. She refused to speak to me. That's a my, big red flag, right? There. I can't even remember. My brother-in-law maybe answered the phone and he was like, I can't even remember what he said, but he was like, basically your mother and your sister are too upset. They can't talk to you. And I was like, why? So my dad got on the phone and started yelling at me about how I needed to be a better wife, about how I was, you know, a disappointment and how I was, you know, need to get my act together and that I need serious help and I need to, you know, get my priorities in order. And I thought, so what I had thought had happened is that he told them about the guy this. kissing you, the one kiss right. in the break room. Yeah. And, uh, and so I thought that all of this was happening because of the kiss. And so, you know, I was a terrible person and I had to atone for this terrible thing that I did. Meanwhile, you know, he had cheated on me and slept with other women multiple times. I, my family refused to speak to me. So I was, I had, that was the lowest point, like this dark, place where I had no one, literally no one to talk to. I had felt, I already felt of course, horribly guilty. And then my family was rejecting me and like turned their backs on me and wouldn't talk to me. But what I didn't know is they had told, he had told them all these horrible things. Right. And so eventually a few days later, my sister finally decided, agreed to get on the phone with me and started talking. And, and some of the things she was saying, I was like, what? 
and then I I said some things around what I had done and she was like what so then it became apparent that we were talking about two very different things and so then it came out what he had said to them and that was I just had no words I was so beyond flabbergasted and shocked because in the meantime of this he dragged me to couples therapy and shamed me in front of therapist the couples therapist actually after two or three sessions she asked to speak to me alone and she said you need to end this relationship because it is not healthy and you need to go on a different path so you know it's pretty bad when the couples therapist is saying that to you I know, but that gives me chills. Thank goodness this person stepped in and saved you because someone, your friends sort of said something, other people had seen it, but it wasn't getting through to you until this brave soul who was actually paid to do this told you, hey, 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 this isn't healthy. And and then, and too, like when my parent, when I found out what they, he had done to my family and they were so angry and they were so with him like, I hope with him, with him. Okay. and like my poor mom to this day I mean this is you know over a decade later to this day she still hasn't forgiven herself for like you know what what she feels is like turning her back on me and when I said to her I'm like you don't have anything to feel guilty about because you were played just like I have been played for the past eight years like this is what he does this is the way it is like you did nothing wrong you were acting based on the information you were given this is not your fault so yeah so you were caught in this and it was becoming your life and your dark place you had to wake up thinking about and go to sleep thinking about it, it was like consuming your whole world but it also awful. was your family was affected and the the ripples of this was more yeah. than just you that was that was sort of how things ended so i had to go home and get up the courage to tell him that I was leaving. I packed a little garment bag of clothes and I left. And it was the most terrifying, gut-wrenching. Like as soon as I left, I threw up um, because it was, I was so incredibly terrified. I didn't think, I thought I'm never gonna survive. I'm never gonna be able to be on my own. I'm never gonna be able to do things. How am I going to live? I, no one is ever gonna wanna be with me. I'm going to die alone. This, this is the end of my life. It felt, so that's how it felt. And it was the most terrifying thing I have ever done to this point. Like, including right now, it's like to this day, it's the most terrifying thing I've ever done. Yeah. Um, because I knew there was going to be punishment. I knew there was going to be retribution. I knew he wasn't just going to accept that I left because how dare I be the one to leave him? Mm-hmm. Right? He doesn't get left. I'm the one that's wrong. But and you so, got out and now you help other people out of this situation. Um, I, I, in my book, I talk about there's a, a you before something happens and a you after. So you just shared the toughest moment that I don't feel like I'm even going to live. So yeah. So what did you do to live? How did you go on? What did, I was homeless for a while. You were homeless. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I I couch surfed for a little bit and that wonderful friend agreed to take me in and I stayed with her for a couple of months and then these other lovely friends who were um, retired and so they were doing a road trip across the United States in uh, their camper van, they asked if I would host it for them. So I stayed in their house for a few months and then I decided to move to a, a, a third world country and do some work there for a while. And that is where I did most of my healing. So you really had to change uh, both friendships, locations. You had to make some major changes and not just your location and friends too, but you also had to change the words you were saying to yourself and the things that you were oh. thinking in your head. I had to engage in, in therapy, right? And, and I had an amazing therapist and I'm very grateful for her. Although I, I do wish that she had had more experience like in in recovery from abuse and like abusive relationships and, and personality disorders, people like that kind of do this manipulation. So that would have, I think, been really helpful at the time. Right. But she, but she was great. And that is how I learned about what gaslighting is. It is how I learned about what, what narcissism is. In, in my case, I did, I, you know, you also find out who your friends are and who they aren't very quickly because they will, they kind of 
recruit an army of people to perpetuate the lies in the smear campaign about you being terrible because of course they're innocent victim and all of these things that happen. And, and so leaving for me was a wonderful option and it was just an opportunity that I had because I had done some volunteer work for a few months there before. So I had an opportunity to go back into work. And so I moved there to the Dominican Republic mm-hmm. and uh, to be taken in by complete strangers because I lived with families for a little while before I had been in the apartment. Um, being taken in by these complete strangers, you know, I don't, they don't, they're not from my culture. I don't know them. I, they don't speak English. Um, and they just completely accepting and open with love. And, and that is not something that I had felt in a very long time. And, and so it was these relationships that, that kind of filled up my, you know, flower pot again with fresh soil because <laughs> it was empty. And, you know, it was those relationships that restored my faith in, in unconditional love and what love felt like because I really forgot what it felt like. I didn't really ever experience it in this relationship. So the you before and the you after, you obviously have self-confidence now and you help other people. Tell me about how you're different now. Part of it was reconnecting with who I was before because I used to be very confident and outspoken and uh, you know, people who know me well know that I uh, am not afraid to voice my opinion, but I had lost all of that. And so part of how I'm different now is reconnecting with the you know, the essence of who I've always been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then also deciding that I wanted to use my experience for good and not let it be just this terrible thing that I survived. And so I decided to go back to school and to do my master's in psychology um, to become a therapist and to leave teaching. That was absolutely the best decision I have ever made. And in that process, when you do a program like that, you are really, of course, in this period of growth and transformation and you know, self-discovery. And so the, the process of doing psychology and counseling training is, is really transformational as well. And before we jump into some of our um, final questions and things, you do have children now. You have bonus kids, as I like to call them, or stepkids. Yeah, and you're kids, yeah. happily married and you've written a couple of books. Bring us to where you are now. Um, so now. for people I need to know that there is a happy after this tough time. There absolutely is. And, you know, I lived um, on my own for like for five years um, before um, settling down with the person who I'm with now. Um, and I was very happy living on my own. Um, and I was very, very, very comfortable and content. Um, you know, of course I had friends and I, you know, dated and I had relationships, but I just loved having my own space and feeling like my life was my own. I had to make my own decisions. I didn't have to answer to anyone. I didn't have to be questioned by anyone. I didn't have to second guess myself. Um, absolutely. And so, um, when I started working in private practice, I saw these women and actually a few men too. Um, I saw these women coming into my office in these same relationships and so many of them. And so I was like, this is is crazy. Like I can't even, oh, is this happening? Like to so many people. And so that's what prompted me to start writing these books because I really started to realize, wow, this is a much bigger and much more profound issue than just me and, and some clients. This must be much bigger than I realized. How can I share how can I be more helpful to more people? And so that's what prompted me to write the books about, uh, you know, healing from toxic relationships. And my most recent one is specific to recovering from narcissistic abuse because, because this is the most kind of damaging type of psychological abuse a, a person can go through. And so there's a lot of trauma and like PTSD that comes as a result of being exposed to these situations and being in these relationships for, you know, periods of time. And so again, that's what I had experienced. And as you can kind of probably guess, like it was so chaotic. I couldn't even make sense of what was happening one day from the next. And so it's really hard to, when you leave, know what to do or how you can even survive and get you move forward. So that's what I focus on now. So I started um, working with women in groups to, to go through this kind of healing and recovery process from the trauma of 
more specific if needs specifically. Thank you. Um, at the end of this, we will give uh, a couple of places where you can get in touch with uh, Heather and find out more. So, all right, I'm going to jump into my final three questions. I feel like we could talk all day, but I, we're going a little long. Okay, my final three questions that we end all of our episodes with. The first one is, what would you say to your younger self? If you could go back and just whisper in young Heather's ear, what would you say? I would tell her never compromise who you are for somebody else. Do you think she'd have heard you? I think she would have need more information. She would have said, what do you mean? And I would say, look at all the things that you've given up for a relationship and for this man and look at how unhappy you are. Don't ever do that. Don't ever give up all of yourself for somebody else. Very good. And our second question, one thing you know now that you wish you had known then? What narcissism looks like? What are the signs? What does that look like? Because if I had have known, I could have saved myself a whole lot of heartache. <laughs> yes. So if you're listening and any of this sounds familiar to you, Google it, uh, do a little homework, order Heather's book, and maybe you'll see uh, if you're in a bad situation, how you can... Um, help yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a little quick little litmus test that I can share with you. Okay. Do it. Do it. Of questions that people can ask. So if you think that maybe some of this sounds familiar, you might ask yourself questions like, does this person in my life, whether it's a partner or, you know, a family member or a colleague, friend, whatever, does this person have an exaggerated sense of self-importance? Does this person expect other people to listen to them and to comply with what they want? Does this person, and this one is super important because this is the hallmark, does this person struggle to have any thought for the needs and feelings of others? This is the lack of empathy piece. Yeah. And this is, this is what separates narcissists from other personality disorders is the lack of empathy, the inability to even consider how what they do or say could impact other people. That's a big one to ask yourself. Does this person experience jealousy? Are they envious of what other people have? Do they feel like they have to compete and sort of like keeping up with the Joneses? Do they believe that other people should be jealous or envious of them? Do they have to have the best of everything? Does the outward appearance matter very much? So if you're answering yes to any of these questions, you might want to have some further discussions with someone about whether or not you're in an abusive relationship with a narcissist. Thank you. That is very helpful for folks who are listening. Uh, and then the last question, one thing that our listeners can do today, which I think you just shared, one thing our listeners can do today to help them get through whatever it is they're going with. So not let's just, since you already shared that, let's make this one thing that listeners can do today to help them get through really dark moments, no matter what they're going through. You shared some of yours moving on, moving locations, working on your language in your head. So, so outside of just the narcissist relationship, because you so eloquently shared those uh, ways to identify them, which I think is the most important thing if you think you're in one. What can someone do today that, that, that would help them get out of a really dark spot? So one thing that is, is I want to say simple, not necessarily easy to start, but simple to do is to start keeping a gratitude journal. Even on the darkest days, this is a really helpful practice. And so it's very, very simple. All you have to do is take your phone or take a notebook and just write one, two, three, and the date. And so you write down three tiny things, very small details, whatever it was, three small things that happened in the day that made you smile, that you're grateful for, that you're thankful for that gave you a moment of a peace or a break from thinking about your misery, whatever it is. And, and it's not the overarching, I'm grateful for my family for having a house. These are constants, of course. You're looking for the minute, small things that happen within each day. So for example, good God, that coffee just hit the spot this morning. I really needed it. it I do love helped. good coffee. Right? Like that just was the best cup of coffee of my life. It feels like you write that down. If you have a pet and you have a moment with your animal and you're just, oh, it feels so lovely. You write that down. 
the sun is shining for the first time in, you know, decades, it might feel like, because it's, you know, we're coming out of winter in Canada anyway. We're just like, <laughs> sunshine. Um, yeah, you know, you have a, a moment where you can see the sun and, and you can feel the warmth on your face for the first time in a long time. You'd write that down. So you're, you're just looking for the small, tiny things that happen in each day. And if we can focus on trying to find those things, it takes us away from that darkness, even if it's just for a minute. And so that's something that you can start doing. Yeah. And it stops the loop in your brain that keeps going to the, to the really difficult place because it is brain chemistry. It is the thoughts will change your brain chemistry. So it's more than just think happy thoughts. You are rewiring your brain by forcing yourself to come up with a few of these little things each day. So great advice there. Thank you so much. Just thanks so much for everything, Heather. This has been great. I'm sure that there's things that you said that really resonated with our listeners. How can they follow you, support you, get in touch with you? Oh my gosh, yes. So if if um, anyone would like to get in touch with me, you can absolutely do so very easily. Um, you can just go to my website, which is heatherjkent.com. That's just my name, heatherjkent.com. And on my website, you can actually follow a link to my calendar and you can book a free one-hour consultation with me. So we can shift for an hour if you would like. If you would also like to read about the, the information that I've talked about, you can also download both of my books for free from my website as well under the resources tab. And uh, those are available for you to access anytime. And if you would like to chat up more about what's going on for you, what your situation is, um, I would be happy to meet with you. So please do book some time with me if you would like to, to have a further conversation. Excellent. And we'll make sure we put that link in the show notes. So when you uh, read the description of this, you will have Heather's information and contact information in there to get you to her website and her calendar. Uh, thanks so much, Heather. And thanks to everyone who's listening. It is when we talk about the really tough stuff that we all get stronger. Whatever you're going through, you've got this. The you 10 years from now, think about this, the you 10 years from now is counting on you to get through this. This has been another episode of This Seriously Sucks. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Nina Sossaman Pogue and her guests. They are not a substitute for professional advice. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK or send a text to www.crisistextline.org. For more resources or to share your story or to get a free copy of my book, go to mythis.club. There is a whole club of folks out there who want to help you get through this.